Hey, it's Will. Before we get into this episode, I have a new segment for us here on the show. It's where we round up the highlights of music reviews from our website, rhythmchanges.ca. And if you're not interested to hear about my favorite music since the last time we published a podcast episode, just skip ahead about two more minutes and you'll be good to go. Anyway, I've got four things to shout out for you here that have happened over the last two weeks that I've covered and that I've really enjoyed. The first one is Chin and Jetty, previous podcast guest, with his single Sparrow. It's got a great cover art by his son, Julian, and I love what this single represents because it's him making music casually in his own living space. I'm always down to see more of that, so I loved reviewing that single when I saw it come out. Then there are three albums that I loved. And I'll hit these quickly. You can check the links in this episode description if you want to read my reviews of them. First one is titled The Blues Project by Steve Maddock, Vancouver jazz vocalist. Really swinging arrangements, awesome band. It's a seller record, so you know already what it's going to sound like. You're going to love it if you kick back and put it on. Second, Great Aunt Ida. I've been scouring YouTube looking for an interview she's done in audio or video or a performance where she said her name on stage so that I could know the pronunciation, but I'm going to guess that it's Ida. The album Unsayable blew me away. I put it on while I was cooking and I had to turn it off because I felt so lonely, but in such a nice way. Loved that album. And third, this is a jazz tour de force, a nonet album called Stranger Than Fiction by award-winning saxophonist from Winnipeg, based in the States, John Gordon. Amazing, amazing record. All jazz fans should love digging into that. So if you want to hear these great albums, check out the links in this episode's description. And for those of you who enjoy my voice as a reviewer and want to follow future reviews that I do, I recommend you follow me on Twitter at Chernoff Music. All right, now let's get on with the episode. Hello and welcome, everybody. My name is Will Chernoff, and you're listening to the Rhythm Changes podcast, a home for creative, improvising, local music people. This show is an ongoing, open-ended series of conversations with folks who make their community fun and prosperous. Listen in, get to know each guest, and learn from their creative experiences. If you're joining us for the first time, don't forget to follow this feed wherever you get your podcasts. And no matter where you are, invite your friends to search for the Rhythm Changes podcast or link them to our website, rhythmchanges.ca. Our guest today is the host of the Infidels Jazz, what began as a radio show called Freedom Jazz Dance on the former Vancouver station No Fun Radio, is now a weekly show with over 100 episodes that you can hear on Mixcloud. Our guest has also produced and released an album by Kenton Lowen and J.P. Carter titled It Becomes Us, and in doing that, he added label services to his brand known as The Infidels. Proof of the respect that he has earned in this community is that he's called on to MC at live performances, write liner notes for artists, and contribute written words to the Vancouver Jazz Festival media. You can find him by visiting theinfidelsjazz.ca or at theinfidelsjazz on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook. 
and it's an honor to welcome to the Rhythm Changes podcast, Tim Reinert. Hi, Will. Thanks so much for having me. Oh, it's my pleasure, and it's awesome to meet you today in this conversation. It's great to meet you, and uh, listening to that wonderful intro, I am honestly have no idea who you're talking about, quite frankly, but uh, hopefully I can uh, live up to the great intro. Thanks so much. Well, maybe one place we can start is that one of the things I checked before coming on here was the number of releases so far that you have bought in your personal Bandcamp collection. Do you have any idea what this number is? Uh, I have no idea. Well, I checked today. So, and I mean, you're very active there. So we can see how this evolves in the future when people are listening to this down the road. But as of today, the number of projects that you've purchased on your personal Bandcamp is 672. I might have to get you to edit that part out so that my wife doesn't, uh, doesn't hear that part. <laughs> um, wow. Yeah, that sounds, that sounds about right. I mean, Bandcamp to me is one of the most exciting things about um, where the music industry has gotten and has evolved into over the last decade or so. And the fact that artists have such, such control over their own product and brand I mean, it, it can only help the business, in my opinion, and to have an organization that is so artist-friendly. And then for me, uh, having started a label recently, uh, label-friendly as well, I mean, it's it's just fantastic. The thing with Bandcamp, though, is you got to do the work. If there's so much great music there, but you have to spend time on it, and you have to find out the stuff that's going on, and you have to sign up for different labels, and it can be a little overwhelming, but what a great resource it is if you truly love exploring new music. It's just fantastic. Yeah, I would say that my two top follows on Bandcamp, following the fan accounts, not the artist accounts, are you and Kevin McNeely. You're both the most active Vancouver people. <laughs> wow. Yeah, Kevin, Kevin and I share a lot of overlap in terms of our tastes, like a lot, a lot, to the point where it's a little scary sometimes. But yes, we... We definitely follow a lot of the same paths, for sure. So I think of you as somebody who has such broad taste in jazz. So if you had to touch on a couple of your favorite things, what would they be? Because I know you as somebody ranges across the whole spectrum. Yeah, I mean, to me, it's such a big music. Like, there's so many different things that fall in the category and especially as I've gotten older I've really tried to be a lot less snobby about what is jazz and what isn't jazz the analogy or the story that I I always think of is you know if you played Charlie Parker's music to King Oliver in 1921 he would have no idea what that was or how it related to what he was doing whatsoever and if you took, you know, the stuff that Charlie Parker was doing in 1944 and you you played him, you know, Albert Ayler or, or John Coltrane or something, it would be also somewhat unrecognizable. The music evolves, the music changes. And to me, that evolution is fascinating. So for me, when I started listening to jazz, it was big band. It was big band and bop. 
I fell in love with big band hard and I still absolutely adore it. But, you know, that changed and that evolved into free jazz, which is a terrible term for the music, but it's the one that seems to have stuck. So I guess we'll go with it. But that is something I'm extremely passionate about. And people think that I'm most associated with, with that kind of music. I've done a lot of MCing for local musicians in that style and vein over the years. And it's something I'm really, really passionate about. But if you tell me that, uh, you know, Jen Hodge is doing a tribute to King Oliver at Pats this Saturday, I am absolutely there. There's just so much great music in, in the jazz genre that it gets overwhelming, but it's like the music that just never stops. There's just so many different things. You know, you could spend years and years and years studying big band music and never even touching a group that was under 18 pieces. And you could spend years and years and years just studying piano solos and the people that have made that into its own art form. It's just such a big music. I don't want to be one of those people that say, oh, I like everything. I mean, I kind of do like everything. But, you know, if you had to put me into different categories, you know, I have a particular fondness for the free jazz that came out of, you know, the post-Coltrane era, the Ornette Coleman's and Anthony Braxton's and the evolution into European free jazz that that became. But if you put me in front of uh, a Sonny Stitt box set, you probably won't hear from me for a couple of weeks, too. That's funny that you brought up Anthony Braxton. That's a good name, too, because I was looking for somebody else. I love this thing that you brought up as a frame of if you played King Oliver for Charlie Parker. I like that as a thought just about jazz and how it constantly changes. And I was trying to think of another one to update it again. And so I was thinking, well, what if you played Kamasi Washington for John Coltrane? They have some common lineage there maybe and somebody like anthony braxton too he's been around to see some of the contemporary artists too but what do you think the innovators from your favorite time period like the 60s and the 70s how do you compare them to some of the leading lights in jazz today you know that's a really interesting question i think that when you look at the people who are playing today and jazz has always taken and borrowed from R&B and pop and rock and classical. So that's not a new thing. The fact that a lot of the musicians today just can adapt music like hip hop and electronic music and classical, probably a little more easily and readily than people were doing in the sixties and seventies. I think that a lot of those people would have found that fascinating. If you had played, you know, Grant Green, the music of, you know, uh, Mary Halverson, I think his eyes would have just lit up and went, oh, are we going to do that now? That's fantastic. I think he would have found something, somebody like her, just so exciting and so fresh. You look at what people back in that era were doing, just how gutsy that stuff was. Tastes were changing. People were moving into pop music. People were listening to all sorts of stuff. And jazz wasn't really a tastemaker music anymore. And yet these people didn't just stick with jazz. They doubled down, even when it was probably as unpopular as it's ever been and as uncommercial as it ever was. So when you look at somebody like Anthony Braxton just to, or Cecil Taylor, and you put 
those guys into that context, it's unbelievable. Like, it's really amazing how brave they were. Anytime you put yourself out there, it's an incredible thing. But what everybody is telling you, actually, we don't like that anymore. We're doing this other thing. And you just say, well, I don't care. I'm literally going to make my own thing and you can either like it or not. I mean, that's the bravest thing I can think of. It's just incredible. When I see people using hip hop today, when I see people using, you know, electronic music as part of jazz, I mean, we're decades into some of this stuff now, but it just really reminds me of just how, how gutsy some of these people are. This is not commercial music. It really never has been commercial music. You know, big band era, you could say it was. And there's outliers, of course, Miles and Brubeck and people like that. But, you know, this is not a music you get into for millions. You do this for love. That is the comparison. That doesn't change. Anytime you're doing it for love, you're doing it for the right reason. And you, too, you, Tim, are doing it for love. You wrote for the coastaljazz.ca website around the Vancouver Jazz Festival 2021 this year, a great article that I enjoyed. And there was one sentence in particular that just jumped out at me and I loved it so much. And it's when you said, I learned who Hugh Fraser and Brad Turner were before I learned about Prince and Madonna. Like, doesn't that just sum it up? <laughs> it's true. You know, it really is true. I, I grew up in a very religious household. And so pop music was a little frowned on and jazz music was not understood at all. And so for me, it was very easy to listen to jazz on CBC, way easier than it was for me to listen to AM radio. Listening to, you know, Katie Malik's program back in the day and being exposed to people like Joe Henderson and but then all these local people, at the time they weren't local to me, but you know, when you hear somebody like Brad Turner and then you hear Joe Henderson, and you don't have any context, for you it's all the same world. So when I got to move here and got to see people like Brad Turner or Hugh Fraser in a club with like 12 other people, and it was, my mind was blown. I could not believe this was something that you actually got to do back in. You'd pay five bucks and you'd see Brad at the Glass Slipper or you'd see Hugh at Rossini's or, or wherever. And the fact that this stuff was so accessible and still is compared to a lot of other musics, uh, it was amazing. And then later on, of course, you know, I listened to people like Prince and Madonna and Michael Jackson and that became part of my story too. But I feel that I'm very fortunate that jazz became part of my story more before those other musics became part of my story, if you know what I mean. Because I think I listened to that stuff maybe a little differently than I would if I grew up with classic rock or pop music, any of those other genres that other people listen to. Yeah, I feel like I grew up with it too, but in a kind of funny different way that's more typical of my generation, which was that I grew up with it because I got exposed to it from high school and from an educational environment, which is different, but also it was great. Yeah. Yeah. And you know what? I have some of that too. It's not quite to the same extent, but you know, when I was in high school, I, I don't talk about this much on the show or, or really on social media at all, but I was going to be a jazz drummer. And I fell in love with jazz drumming hard. 
I was about 13 years old. For years, that was going to be my thing. All the way through high school, I did the stage band thing. I did the concert band thing. I did led small ensembles, et cetera, et cetera. And this was going to be my thing. I was 100% sure that I was going to be a professional jazz drum. And then I went to, uh, and I don't talk about this a lot either, but I went to Capilano College for one year. And the reason I went there for one year is because it took me about four days to realize that to become a professional jazz musician, you had to have talent. And I realized pretty quickly that I had literally none of that. <laughs> it, it, uh, it didn't take me long to realize that this was going to be something that I was going to be enjoying from the sidelines. But I came up through that stage band program. I, I, I know how important it is to musicians, that camaraderie, which I fell in love with really early on. And it's a big part of why big band music was such an important thing for me as a kid. I loved it. When you're playing stage bands, you tend to think that's what jazz is. And, you know, later on you realize, oh, that's just one small part of what jazz is. But it's a huge part of the learning curve, right? It's really important. Oh, man. Tim, that's so funny. I also went there for only one year. Okay. <laughs> yeah. It's a great place. It's wonderful that we have it. And for a lot of people, it's the right thing. Here's the interesting spin off of that. You're talking humorously about how you realized about the playing level and about your own playing and that fundamental part of it, right? I went and what I learned was that I didn't have the talent to become a teacher myself. And that was a big part of what the program was about. So in some sense, I also didn't have a talent that was important. Yeah, I mean, we could, there's, there's people who are far smarter than me who can talk about the pros and cons of jazz education in the 21st century and how jazz seems to have evolved commercially into basically teachers creating new teachers. And, you know, we could talk about that for hours and whether or not that's been a good thing or not. I tend to maybe think it's not a great thing, but it really seems to be the way that jazz education has kind of uh, evolved over the years and that, you know, people, don't seem to want to really play anymore. They want to be teachers. Well, I would agree with your quick take on that, just so you know. Okay. I mean, don't get me wrong. Teaching is incredible and great teachers are always needed. But when the entire industry just seems to be this endless cycle of great teachers creating great teachers, you have to ask yourself, well, do we really need this many teachers? Should not some of these people start, you know, running jazz clubs and you know, leading bands and things like that? And again, I think that's a little out of my pay grade, so to speak. I think there's people who are far more qualified to speak to that. And I'm sure right now I have a lot of friends who are going to be sending me angry texts about uh, disparaging the jazz education field, but <laughs> whatever. What can you do, right? Yeah, you're right. This is a, a topic for another day, for a headier time, because <laughs> I definitely want to talk a bit about your radio show, The Infidels, and the label The Infidels. Before I jump there, you're talking about people who are playing and running venues and doing things. Sounds like people who are keeping the community active on an ongoing basis, right? And 
I mean, I was aware of you and your work for the last two or so years that I've been more active as a Vancouver emerging jazz artist, but I really saw you and appreciated what you were doing fully, not until February of this year, you got up on stage to MC Jamie Lee into the winter presentation by Coastal Jazz. And at that point, it clicked that this was who you were. And then I started listening to your show. But it, it took until then. That's, that's really interesting. I've been MCing here in ba- jazz gigs in Vancouver for, oh my goodness, since, I'm going to say since 1996. I started MCing gigs for Coastal. John Orsic, who's the marketing guru for Coastal and for the local jazz festival for many, many years, asked me to get involved. And so I started MCing and I really liked it. And I really felt that it was a way that I got to contribute just a little bit into a scene that I loved a lot. When you start emceeing for the jazz festival, I think I emceed outside of Metrotown and maybe in North Vancouver a few times. And you would get these weird gigs outside where like three people would show up. But your job was to you know provide context to the artists and get people excited. I would do that and still do. It's been a really great way to keep connected to a scene and also get exposed to the changes in the scene. You know, the scene here evolves and the scene here is different than it was back in the nineties. It's probably a little more straight ahead these days. It feels like to me and to see that evolution, to see new people come into the scene, you know, somebody like Jamie, who you mentioned, who is just really fresh, exciting voice, who has all these crazy influences, but her own thing doesn't sound quite like anybody else. You know, when somebody like that pops into a scene, and there's so many examples right now, it's just, it's so exciting, right? Yeah. You're so excited by the potential and then what she's going to do. And when she plays at Frankie's, you, I want to kind of turn to everybody and go, do you guys have any idea? Like in 20 years, you're going to be bragging to your friends that you got to see her in such a tiny venue. Oh, yeah. So funny that you bring that up because you said you listened to the Steve Caldestad episode. He was talking about how when he was my age, like 25 or 26 in New York, he was going to go see Kurt and Mark Turner and those guys like every night. And his friends would be like, oh, man, you're going to go see them again? (laughs) Yeah. 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 And now, of course, people are like, oh, my God, why didn't you see them even more? I mean, it's such a great opportunity. New York is a whole other place. And it's uh, what a oh, we could talk about for hours about New York as well. I've never been there, so I wouldn't be able to hold up very much yet. So I'm looking forward to my first time someday. Oh, man. It's uh, it really, you know, New York, in some ways, I feel that it gets overstated because I feel that people put too much importance into it and then they don't want to focus on their own scenes. But then you go to New York and you realize there is nothing like it. I mean, you spend three nights there going from gig to gig to gig and it's heaven. It's just like nothing else on earth. It's intense. But I mean, when I go there, I just get reminded, you know, the history and the tradition. And if you love jazz, that history and tradition is part of, you know, it's not just the music. Remembering Billie Holiday. Coltrane and this lineage 
And the fact that you can still kind of in New York go to some of the places that these people played and sometimes get to see people they played with. And that's still an ongoing tradition. I remember the first time I ever went to the Village Vanguard and standing there at the bar and, and just being so overwhelmed by everybody who had ever played there and that it was the same venue and that Miles played there and Coltrane played there and everybody else you can imagine. And then I'm, I'm about to, I'm pretty close to passing out and then Stanley Crouch walks in. So it's like crazy. Like that's a real thing that would happen and still happens in New York. Not so much with Stanley Crouch, of course, but it's just always wonderful to be reminded that this is such a living, breathing music and that these people they're real people. Yeah. That's funny that you bring up Stanley Crouch. I didn't plan this at all, but now I'm curious. What is your relationship to other writers and chroniclers of jazz like him? Oh man. Oh, well, see, this is another one I'm gonna get angry text about. For me, when I was when I was falling in love with jazz, I will tell you, Downbeat magazine was it for me. Downbeat magazine when I was in junior high school was a huge thing for me. And reading about jazz, especially now that I have some context and some years behind it, I realize how much reading about jazz was important to me. Reading about people listening to new albums and getting excited about, you know, the new Henry Threadgill or the new Miles reissue campaign, whatever it was, that I think probably influenced me more than anything when I was a kid that whole gatekeeper thing probably means more to me than it means to a lot of people. I think context matters. It's really important. And for the people who have an actual gift at context, and I think it really is a gift, um, those people matter a lot. You know, uh, Phil Schaff and, and, and uh, who we lost recently, or George Ween, who we lost recently. These people expose us to things that, we normally wouldn't listen to expose in a really good way. Yeah. Expose in a really good way. And I think that these are all points of view and there isn't a wrong point of view. Really. There isn't a really a right point of view. And, you know, you mentioned, so with Stanley Crouch, I can think of so many artists that he turned me on to and who if you go back and you listen to, if you read some of the early OTB albums and you hear him talking about Ralph, read, read him talking about Ralph Peterson. I defy you not to get excited about Ralph Peterson's music just because of how he talks about it. But then you can hear him talking about Braxton or Taylor or David Murray, who he played with, although he didn't like to admit that he played with them. Um, you know, and he will talk about those people like they were riffraff, you know, not people not to be taken seriously. Now, does that make the, the when he talked about Winton or Ralph Peterson wrong? Not really. It's just a different point of view. Him disparaging some of the, the free jazz and stuff that I love a lot doesn't really upset me the way it upsets a lot of people because to me, that guy left his life doing far more good than than harm and who cares if he didn't like a few records big deal totally yeah we can't all like the same stuff 
No, and so it's fine if we all stake out the things that we like and we try and share them or even advocate for them because there's always going to be room for the next person to come in. And as long as you believe that, then it's fine. If people play to their taste, that's great, right? Yeah, I mean, the thing is with him, you know, reading him write about Charlie Parker, it's one of the most transcendent experiences you could possibly imagine. You can't, you have to get excited about Charlie Parker when you read him. Uh, you know, discussing him. I don't really want to hear him talk about the art ensemble of Chicago because it doesn't really add to my enjoyment of the art ensemble of Chicago. It's disparaging and it's insulting and who cares? There's lots of great writers that can talk forever about the art ensemble and I'll just read one of those. Yeah. Good lessons to live by in a lot of different ways when you can kind of zoom past the people's opinions that you don't like and focus on the ones that you do. Yeah, there's it's it's life's too short, man. Too many, too yeah, much great music, totally. too many great writers. What is your history of making a jazz radio show like pre Freedom Jazz Dance? Because I couldn't figure that out if there was. There was none whatsoever. Wow. the The only real background I have is in MC. That's really um, gotcha. That's really where it stems out of. Um, when I was a kid and I was, you know, thinking I was going to be a musician, I did a lot of emceeing for different, you know, all my stage bands in high school. I did all the emceeing for all the concert bands uh, because I had had a background in performance. And so it was very natural and easy for me to grab a mic and just say, hey, here's who we're about to listen to. That evolved into emceeing, which then eventually many, many years later evolved into the show. And when No Fun Radio started up, a friend of mine who was doing some shows for them was told by them that they needed a jazz host. And so he just put my name forward. And it's one of those things that you're like, oh, could I have been doing this the whole time? Um, and I, I guess I could have, but somebody needed to kind of spur me on a little bit. So I did that for a while. And the no fun thing was good. It, it was never the show I really wanted it to be. You know, it took me a, a while to get my sea legs on it. And when they closed, I realized how much I was loving it. But I really wanted to do my own thing. And I really wanted to do the show that I wanted to do. And so it took me a little while to figure out the technology. And But, I mean, that's the great thing of the 21st century, something like that. You can just do it home now, right? As you're doing right now. It's not something you need to be invited to do. You can just do it. And so it took me a little while to figure out the technology. I'm lucky enough that one of my best friends is a great engineer, Chris Preston, who uh, does all the, uh, the audio work and editing on the show so that I don't sound too foolish. It's been a work in progress. We're over two years in now. There's a format to the show, but I try not to stick too much to the format. And if things come up that I want to explore, I'll do that. But I really try to make the show music first, me talking about the music second. Totally, yeah. Yeah, I don't want people to turn in and go, okay, are we going to have to listen to this nerd, you know, talk about Charlie Parker for 20 minutes before I actually listen to Charlie Parker? You know, Charlie Parker can sell himself really well as far as I'm concerned. Um, but context matters, and I try to provide context. And so to me, that's what the show is about. It goes back to that whole point of view thing. It's my point of view, but I also try to let the music speak for itself. So I try not to 
talk too much about like genres on the show. Try not to say, oh, this is going to be something really weird or crazy or avant-garde. You're going to figure that out on your own when you listen. Me telling you that Cecil Taylor is maybe not going to sound like any other piano player you've ever heard isn't going to change the way that Cecil Taylor hits your eardrums. I think one, one of the downfalls of jazz is the perception that you have to be able to explain jazz in order to appreciate jazz. It's wonderful that we're all a bunch of little jazz nerds that can talk about, you know, all the different drummers that played on Miles Davis records, but people do not care. People just don't care. And yeah. if you want somebody to get excited about Miles Davis, you do not tell him about the differences between, you know, um, Wayne Shorter and John Coltrane, because they're just not going to care. Yeah. They'll hear yeah. it. And you don't have, they'll hear the differences in these tunes too. You won't, you won't have to really break them down. You can still do a show where you play a bunch of freedom jazz dances or summer times, and it'll still be interesting to your listeners. Yeah, absolutely. Nature Boy is the one that I've been wanting to do for, for a while. But again, there's just, that is such a, I don't know, I find that such a tough tune to kind of, to wrap your head around. It's one of those, those tunes that seems to be more up here than it is in the heart. So I have to, I'll have to do some research on that one too, I think. Huh. I have a big memory of Nature Boy of a specific arrangement, which is that uh, I heard like Lila Bialy's arrangement of it live. And I thought that was so awesome. Oh, okay. I'm not sure I've heard that one. Yeah. It's pretty epic. It's pretty lush, pretty lushed out. But I remember hearing that a while ago and that being kind of the first version of the song that I think of even at this point. This is a big statement, but I think probably my all-time favorite version of that is a version that uh, Johnny Hartman did for a Japanese album that he recorded. I'm going to say around 72. I might be completely wrong on that. And it's not a ballad. He doesn't do it as a ballad. It's this slinky groove monster that never really heard anybody approach the tune the way he, he, he does on this. And it's amazing. I played it on the show a couple of times because I just, I love it so much. It's probably my very favorite version of that tune. Yeah. There's two more things I want to hit about your radio show. One thing I'm curious about is, so when you play younger and emerging Vancouver jazz artists, which you do. Like take somebody like Ilhan Safarali or somebody else like that, who's also been on the podcast. What happens when you play them? Do you end up interacting with them? Or is it something where you are pulling from their catalog and you're playing it and it doesn't end up causing an interaction between the two of you? What is it like when and what does it mean when you play younger local jazz musicians music? Well, I think you'd have to ask them more than me. If you're a young jazz musician, one of the terrible things about jazz is that it's one of the few genres of music where being young is considered a weakness. If you're jazz and under the age of 40, and you know this uh, firsthand, you do not get treated the same as if you were a young punk musician or a young country musician. It's something that the respect comes with experience and age. And that's that's valid. That's really important. Experience is great. But if nobody's giving you those opportunities, if nobody's playing your music, it can be very discouraging. And I have seen plenty of gigs in this city 
of young musicians who are playing in front of five people or six people and they're sounding crazy good and everything's cooking, but nobody's paying attention. You know, they're not a name yet and they don't have the, you know, nobody's talking about them in the Georgia Strait or whatever it is. You know, why not help those people? Why not play that music? And again, it goes into that evolution thing that we're talking about. Not everything always has to be fully formed, you know? So to me, to play, you know, Ilhan's first album, it's a good album and I liked it a lot, but you and I both know that the album that that guy makes when he's 30 is going to be insane. And, but that doesn't mean I should wait. Yeah. Watching that evolution is part of jazz. If you listen to, you know, people like Todd Stewart's another great example of, you know, the stuff that guy's going to be doing in 10 years. Like, it's just, you're so excited. Or Matt Franchini. I mean, these are really talented people. And in one, one day, they're going to make an album that blows everybody away. But we got to get them to that place, right? Where they can, they still want to be making those albums when they're 30 or 35. We don't want them to get discouraged. So to go back to the question, when I play the young musicians, they tend to reach out and they tend to be excited, but I'm always so hesitant and always so worried about making the show about me more than the musicians. So I always want to make sure that, that what matters is the actual music and, and that always needs to be the primary focus. Great that they're excited, but I want them to focus on what's important, which is like just continuing to make great music. You know, occasionally people, well, it happens more and more now. Um, you know, people will pitch me stuff for the show. They'll send me a file and they go, hey, the new album's coming out and, you know, just take a listen or whatever. And and when people make that effort, I really try to make the effort to play it if, it, if it's something that I dig. That's pretty much the only rule of the show. If I don't dig it, I'm not going to play it. But I'm also not going to disparage it or, as you've heard on the show, I don't talk about albums I don't like very much. To me, that's not what the show is about. There's too much good music to focus on the handful of records I don't like. Let's talk about the positive stuff. And, you know, in 2021, to make an album is easier than it ever has. And so you're a kid, you're 21 years old. You know, it's the easiest thing to sit at home with a keyboard and a mic and you've made a record. That's fantastic. But in 2021, it's harder than ever to get people to pay attention to that stuff. When everybody can make a record at home, it's hard to realize what's good. So I think if you're, if you're going to play in this space, it's important to pay as much attention is to these people who are working hard and figuring out how to be part of the scene as it is to pay attention to the old veterans and the legends and pay respect to the past, because that's, of course, really important, too. Love that. Yeah, that's so true. And it's not hypothetical for me either. I'm definitely one of those people who gets discouraged like everybody else and has to figure out how I get to my next release, my next project, my next gig, right? Yeah, I, 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 I have such respect for, for people like you who are working through it. I mean, it's, again, going back to that passion. It's going back to that love. You know, you're not doing this for money, Bill. You're doing it because you love your connection to this music. You know, what a great reason to do something like that. Yeah. And speaking of that, before we jump off the radio show, just talk a little bit about what you've done with it to raise money for food banks. 
Oh wow, that's that's yeah, that's great. We 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 launched that last year. I'm looking at doing it uh, this year as well. It worked better than I ever would have expected, and I don't think anybody that lives in Vancouver doesn't know that we have a uh, uh, you know homeless issue here and a food scarcity issue here with with certain aspects, with certain parts of our of our population, and so. What I wanted to do is try to figure out a way that I could raise money for, you know, the food bank ended up being, the Vancouver Food Bank ended up being the, the primary source that we, we donated the money to. But um, there was probably five or six different organizations throughout the Lower Mainland that ended up getting some donations because of it. And, and so what I did at the end of October of last year basically said, if you were going to donate a certain amount of money to one of these food banks, I would literally create an episode of the show just for you. And if I knew you, it was obviously easier. So if I know what your tastes are, you know, for example, if I'm going to do a show for Corey Weeds, I'm not going to be playing Ken Vandermark or, uh, you know, Marion Brown or people like that. Um, and <clears throat> try to make it as much about that person as humanly possible. If I didn't know that person, I would try to learn about them, maybe talk to their friends, ask them a few questions here or there. The more money you donated, the longer the show would be. And so, you know, some people got an hour-long show. Some people got a 15-minute show. We'll tweak the format this year because it ended up being quite uh, work-intensive, but it was it worked out well. We we I can't remember right now, but I think we raised over three grand, maybe close to four grand. Uh, for different food banks. And uh, so it ended up being far more successful than I would have thought. And uh, people love when you put that personal touch, you know, when, when it's about you, when it, when, when you feel that someone's paying attention, it matters, you know? So it ended up being great. The jazz community here was really uh, supportive and a lot of musicians who, Quite frankly, especially at that time, because we're right in the middle of COVID, you know, not a lot of these musicians could afford to be donating money, and yet they were. And uh, I think that also shows we don't just have talent here; we have really good people in the scene here. Yeah, well, when you do that again, I'm I'm in in some fashion. I'm gonna I'm gonna jump in because that's awesome. I I love what you did there. That's fantastic. Yeah, I, I I'd like to do a version where the musicians are involved more because uh, I know there's a lot of musicians where this is something that is important for them as well. You know, we have a lot of musicians that play on the downtown east side and, and they're affected by by the issues this community has all the time. So I know there's a lot of musicians who are willing to put themselves out there for this. So it's just a matter of figuring out the right approach, but we'll be doing some version of it this year for sure. So when you put out the album, It Becomes Us on the Infidels a record label, you said that it was important to you to record the playing of Kenton Lowen. Talk a bit about that. Yeah. I mean, I've been wanting to do a label forever. Like for me as somebody who, who loves the business side of music a lot and who has a background in that to some extent, it was, it's something that I've always wanted to do, but it's one of those things I just never, you know, that's something other people do, but the show kind of made me realize that I had been wasting time and that, Right now, there's never been a better time to do stuff like this. The technology is so accessible. Um, and so it was a matter of just finally doing something I've always wanted to do. 
And Kenton is probably the first person I thought of when it was time to, to really think about who I was going to have on the label. And I think Kenton is one of those drummers that I would put, uh, you know, up against some of the best that New York or Chicago has to offer. Uh, not that it's a competition, but to me, um, the musicality of his playing, it is so melodic. It is so intense. Um, watching him live is, um, it's a transcendent experience. You know, watching, when you see him play drums, it's great seeing him, but it's also amazing watching people see him for the first time seeing the look on their face when they realize this is a guy that lives in Vancouver and that they can go and see at any time. He also brings, there's a rock and roll nature to his playing. Um, there's an R and B thing in there. There's that soul and funk thing. That's really not overt, but it's there. And to me, this combination of, of influences that he has, it's just, I find him an endlessly entertaining drummer. And one that I think musicians know about, but as a leader, you know, it's not necessarily something that he focuses on. When he's done his own stuff, it's usually, you know, focusing on the singer-songwriter uh, aspect of his skills, which is great. I really wanted to hear something where he's playing in that tradition. We talked about different projects. Uh, at one point, there was going to be an Albert Ayler a tribute album. That was one of the things we talked about. There was one, there was going to be like a drum tribute album that he was going to be part of. And uh, we had agreed that, Hey, we're going to do something. And then COVID happened a week later. We, you know, put that to the side. And then last summer, as you know, there was lots of outdoor gigs happening. And I went to see him and JP again, two people I've seen playing together maybe maybe dozens, maybe even a hundred times. Plus I've seen them both individually many times, but I don't think I had ever heard them play as a duet before. And man, it just clicked. It just, everything connected emotionally the way the best music does. You're, it's Everything is so simple and it was clear. I went up to Kenton right after the gig and I looked at him and he looked at me and I go, I think that's the album. And he goes, yeah, I, I think that's the album too. And so we figured out, you know, um, I wanted to make sure there was a real connection to the jazz tradition, especially that free jazz tradition that, that he loves a lot and that I love a lot. So there's, you know, the art ensemble covers on there and there's Ornette Coleman and there's Sonny Chirac and, and, and that part of the music is covered, but also, uh, it was really important to Kenton to make sure there was a healthy amount of improv on the album. And so, um, and when I say improv, I mean, those two guys made that stuff up in the studio that day. Yeah. Not taking solos, but free improvisation on the spot. Yeah. yeah. Really free, really, really, really free. And that's, I think made the album really unique. Um, there's a lot of the album that's accessible and that has a lot of melodic context. Um, and then there is stuff that if you've never listened to this stuff before, hey, it's going to be a trip. I wanted to focus on the future as much as we did on the past. Um, so to me, that's that's what makes the album work really well is those those two parts of the music, you know, the where we came from and where we're going. 
It's uh, and I think it worked really well. Now I know because you started your radio making journey with Freedom Jazz Dance into the Infidels, you have now started your label producing journey. What did you then learn and what was your role like from then when you recorded it in fall 2020 to release? Oh, I learned a lot. So if you look at the record, I'm listed as the producer of the record. For those of you who are listening who want to know what being a jazz producer, jazz album producer means, it means that you make sure you get the right coffee and that you get the right sandwiches for the musicians and then you stay out of the way. Then later on, there's stuff for you to do. First part, you stay out of the way and you let talented people be talented people. And then, yep, yep, absolutely. And then later on, that's when I had to do my, my work. And even though I knew how many different moving pieces there would be, it was still a challenge. And even a record like that, which is it's just drums and trumpet, probably best decision that I made was getting David Sekula involved um, because that guy forgets more about how to record an album, you know, on an average Saturday than I will ever learn in my entire life. And so, <laughs> I've done a session with him. It was so awesome. Yeah. Is that guy not just, you know, it's so, he's so humble. He'll never come out and say, Hey, just so you know, I really know a lot about this, but then you talk to him for five minutes and you're like, why is he not recording every single session in town? Like it's crazy how much that guy knows. And so to have a guy like that who really shepherded me through a process that I knew very little about, that was amazing. He would never, you know, I'd get little emails from him at two o'clock in the morning. Go, hey, you know, I'm sure you already know about this, but just so you know, you have to do this, this, or this. And I have no idea what he's talking about. And I'm like, yeah, Dave, I already knew about that. That's totally fine. Um, yeah, you're not teaching me everything. I, it's just really a great resource to have. Probably what made it a bit of a learning curve is that we we kind of rushed the post-production part. We had the album in the can. Of course, it's COVID. You know, nobody's really knowing what's happening. We're not sure what the point of even releasing a record is. I'm kind of discouraged at this point. You know, who knows when uh, gigs will ever happen again. And Kenton really was the motivator. Kenton's like, look, Jazz Fest is coming up. There's a gig. Let's get it out for the gig. But that was in March to have a, you know, an unmixed, unmastered album in the can in March and get it out for June. It's not impossible, but it was a lot. And so to get all the different parts, different artwork, uh, we had a really talented comic book artist named Simon Roy, who lives uh, in Victoria, very talented guy, doing our artwork. Uh, ben Frith, who runs Neptune Records here, he did the design of the cover and, and put everything together. You know, to have these talented people help me with this, it was, it was awesome. And so even, even, you know, things like the design of the cover, which I kind of figured would kind of all fall into place, you know, to have somebody like Ben, who's, you know, been putting out albums on rock and roll albums on his Neptune uh, label for years to have him help talented people wanting other talented people to succeed. It, it was a really great thing to see. And I learned so much about how collaborative this is. And you can call, you can say it's your label. You can say you're the producer, but unless you have a group of people who are committed to getting the art 
out the door. It's not going to happen. So that has been one of the great learning curves of this. And so it was very little ego involved, you know, very, very, it was all collaborative. Um, I, you know, Kenton and I probably texted each other thousands and thousands of times in a three week, four week period as we were working on the mixing and mastering and to be able to, you know, get to hear what a guy like that hears when he hears an unmixed record. It was awesome. It was fantastic. It was uh, something that you can't learn at school. You can't learn that at a, at cap because you're getting, again, that point of view. It was uh, a really interesting experience and I learned a lot and uh, hopefully I've learned enough so that the next one isn't quite as labor intensive. We'll see what happens, but uh, yeah, it was an amazing experience and we're excited about it. People seem to be very happy with the record and, you know, it's it's a free jazz record, so it's not like it's going to be played on the CBC anytime soon. But um, the people that have listened to it seem to love it, and that's all that matters. So what can you share about what's coming up next for your label? Well, I, I can share that um, I in the, in the weeks after the label came out and uh, we had some pr- local press and got a really good review in uh, The Wire, which is a very prestigious experimental music publication in the UK. I can share that I heard from a lot of jazz musicians that I hadn't heard from in a long time, just reaching out to see how I was doing. So uh, that was, you know, and and that's to be expected. You know, everybody needs help putting out their stuff. You know, it's hard to do this stuff on your own. You know, we're not 100% sure what the next album is going to be. I think I know what it's going to be. I don't, we're way too early to talk about that. But it's going to be in the same vein. It's probably going to be in that free jazz vein again. Working on getting some funding uh, from the province of BC, uh, that's still in its early days. Um, that's going to be really important to uh, make sure that we can uh, put out uh, more and more records. Hopefully not just limited to uh, free jazz or avant-garde jazz. Love to do some straight-ahead stuff and uh, more traditional jazz as well, which I'm very passionate about. I, I think at this point it's going to probably be a stretch for the next album to come out before the end of the year. Uh, but I'm hoping for uh, spring. Okay. But it sounds like not nothing recorded yet. Still trying to figure that out. No, there's, there's, there, there, there are albums that are recorded. What I'd really like to, I don't necessarily want to emulate what we did here where I'm in the studio, you know, quote unquote, producing an album. I don't think it's necessary. I don't think I add very much to that at all. You know, talented musicians don't need some loser, you know, telling them what tunes to play. They know, they know what they're doing. Um, but to have somebody come in afterwards and, you know, take over the boring stuff, you know, the art production and liner notes and, you know, making sure everything looks good and it's distributed properly and, you know, t- setting up, you know, Bandcamp pages, that stuff takes a long time. And, you know, I'd rather have talented musicians be talented musicians rather than having to waste their time on stuff like that if they don't want to do it. So I see the infidels going forward, you know, stepping in after the album is released rather than being involved at the beginning. I don't really need to be involved right from the beginning with the artistic process. Cause again, I don't think that's something I can contribute much to. So what 
happened when we released the first album is that a lot of people reached out with finished product. Maybe not all mixed, maybe not all mastered, uh, maybe not all put together, um, but with actual, you know, this is pretty close to being done. Is it something you're interested in? And then those conversations are happening now. So if if the if the next album is the one I think it, it's going to be, it's it's finished, but it's not mixed or mastered yet. Gotcha. That process can be very short and quick and painless, but it can also be incredibly long and arduous, as you know. Speaking like someone who's been at this for a long time, but you got one album under your belt. That's because you're bringing all your other expertise to the table here. <laughs> I, I was very fortunate. I learned a lot in a very short period of time, I think. And I'm also very fortunate because I have a lot of very talented friends who have been doing this for a very long time. And so I was very lucky that, you know, when I was struggling, when I wasn't sure what to do, you know, I could call people like Corey Weeds or Ben Frith or, you know, or, or David who have, you know, or Chris, you know, Chris Jestrin who's put out so many great albums. I mean, these, these are wonderful resources. We're very lucky to have them here. So yeah, very fortunate to be able to uh, pretend that I know what I'm doing based on the, uh, uh, the friends that I have. Well, Tim, this has been awesome. I admire your work. I identify with your mission and it's been a blast chatting with you. You're absolutely invited for a follow-up in the future when you've got other albums out. Maybe we could even do an in-person one because you're right, there's a lot that we could talk about. And I want to thank you for taking the time to chat with me today. Oh, thank you so much, Will. This has been a real pleasure. I hope I didn't talk your ear off too much. Um, And uh, (laughs) thanks for doing what you're doing. I really appreciate it. Thank you for tuning in to this episode of the Rhythm Changes podcast. If you haven't followed the feed yet, make sure you do. And think about your friends who might enjoy listening too. Tell them to search for the Rhythm Changes podcast wherever they get their podcasts. If you want more from us, visit our website, rhythmchanges.ca. The Rhythm Changes podcast is a Chernoff Music production. Copyright 2021, Chernoff Music.